The other day I was driving my two older kids somewhere and as we were driving along they were jokingly singing a song in the car that I hadn't heard for quite a few years. They were singing the opening theme song to Thomas the Tank Engine or Thomas and Friends. And if you haven't had kids in the last 15 or so years, you probably don't know that song, but Thomas the Tank Engine's little children's show from Great Britain, got a little tank engine with a face and they talk and all this sort of stuff. And so there's all these different characters. Of course, there's Thomas and there's Gordon and Emily and Percy and Henry and all these different characters. And the theme song talks about, you know, Thomas, he's the cheeky one. and. Uh, Emily, she really knows her stuff, and then Henry, he uh, toots and huffs and puffs or something like that. And so they're singing the song. I have no idea why they were singing this song while we were driving along, but it, it started me thinking, reminiscing, I guess you'd say, about when our kids were smaller and that specific show, because they probably watched every single episode that was on the, at that time on Netflix. Uh, they watched it over and over and over again, and so uh, we knew all of the shows inside and out. And one of the characters is not a train, but a human. And he's like the, the guy who runs the railroad, Sir Topham Hatt. And he is always chastising the engines, especially Thomas, because they are causing chaos and confusion or confusion and delay. So he's always talking about chaos and confusion is the problem that they have caused. And with that theme song from Thomas and Friends stuck in my head, I, I found myself thinking about the fact that our society at this cultural moment is plagued by all kinds of chaos and confusion. It is just rampant around us constantly. And not just in the last couple of years and not just because of COVID, there's just a lot of chaos and confusion in 21st century Western culture. And I think that you would probably agree that we are living in a time of significant chaos and confusion. The chaotic events around us and the inconsistent and confusing narrative that we are constantly bombarded by through the corporate news media and even through social media, it causes everything to be in what feels like a confused and chaotic state. One of the people that I follow on Twitter over the last couple of weeks has been posting short video conversations, kind of interviews that he has been holding with homeless individuals in San Francisco. And obviously we know that here in the state of California, and especially, especially in places like Los Angeles and San Francisco, the homeless population has ballooned in the last several years. And all the effects of that, all the results of those things going on. And so he's been posting these videos on Twitter and I was watching one. And you, you can't watch his interviews without being totally blown away by the confused and chaotic state of our society and the way that many of our leaders in these municipalities are running their governments. The, the leader seems to be fueling places like Los Angeles and San Francisco with these sort of issues and these problems. And so that's just one kind of peek into the chaos and confusion of our culture, what's happening with homelessness. And that's not the only thing. My, my daughters are in fourth and sixth grade and they have told me a number of times they go to you know public school, really good school in our area, charter school in our area, but they've told me about girls in their class who are confused about their identity and about sexuality in fourth and sixth grade, which is just completely difficult for me to wrap my mind around that this is a problem for kids who are 12 and 10 years old who are really wrestling with these, these issues. Barna Research is a Christian researching organization, a polling agency, kind of like Gallup or Pew Research, and 
They recently, just this last week even, released data that shows that four in 10 of those born between, or after 2000, so those that we would call Generation Z in our culture, four out of 10 of those born after 2000 uh, now identify as LGBTQ within our culture. 30% of millennials, those are born from 1980 to 2000, basically the generation that I'm kind of like the senior class of, like the very earliest of the millennials, 30% of millennial Christians, those who identify as a Christian, also identify as LGBTQ. I read an article this last week and actually I found that I couldn't even read the entire article because it was, it was pretty disturbing what was being cited in this article and some of the things that the author of this essay really was saying. And what this was about is the push here in the United States and in Canada and uh, Western Europe. So basically in the Western world, there has been a consistent push over the last several years to add to that LGBTQ, add the letter P. And P in LGBTQ would stand for pedophilia. So there is a push to consider pedophilia as a sexual identity that people are wrestling with and born with and that they can't get away from. And so, so this is a pretty gnarly situation. So the chaos and confusion at a leadership level and how to deal with issues like mental health issues and homelessness and addiction, the, the issues around uh, gender identity, even down into the grade school, elementary school ages, issues having to do with adding pedophilia as, as a class within sexual identity or, or sexual orientation. Like th these are real confusing and chaotic things that are happening in our culture. And, and that doesn't even take into consideration all kinds of other issues that are happening. I mean, it came out this last week that inflation, again, set a new record in the last month. And we're, again, at a 40-year high for inflation. The average worker in America has experienced about $250 a month increase in costs, and probably much more for a lot of people, especially if you're having to buy fuel here in Southern California. So. The economy is in a confusing and chaotic spot. Some economists see three to four economic bubbles bursting within the next 36 months, which is going to have huge impact and ramification, not just here in the United States, but throughout the entire world. The debt in the United States has now crossed $30 trillion. That's 125% of gross domestic product. And when you add the unfunded liabilities, when you factor those into the number, then the unfunded liabilities and the national debt rise to about $86.5 trillion in the United States. And I haven't even begun to talk about geopolitical issues having to do with Asia and Russia and the Middle East, or any of the things having to do with COVID and the political response to it, and now kind of populist uprisings and things that we're seeing in Canada and other parts of the nation and the world. So we are living and I, I think you would probably acknowledge and recognize in confusing times. If you and I were to sit down and have a conversation, we could probably come up with a long list of other things that are chaotic and confusing. And you're not supposed to say things in our culture now. There's certain things that are like off limits for you to say, things that would seem to be self-evident and clearly true. You're not supposed to say things like male and female are binary realities or that sex and gender are determined by biology. You're not supposed to say that there are lifestyles that are right and there are ones that are wrong. There are lifestyles that are normal and then abnormal and even things that are aberrant. You're not supposed to 
intervene when mobs of thieves will ransack a retail is, uh, store in, a, in, in regular business hours, right? In, the midst of everything that's going on in a mall. Security officials will often just stand by and watch this happen as they are consigned to simply observe and report the things that are happening. And why are these things happening? I believe that the simple answer is that we live in a broken and fallen world. And chaos and confusion are actually normal. They're normative in a broken and fallen world that is affected by sin, especially when there is no governing standard. And for the better part of the last 60 to 70 years, we have had a systematic deconstruction of the governing standards in the Western world, the chaos and confusion that is plaguing our society, and which is very, very likely going to continue and to increase over the next several years. It, it is the expected outcome of, if you were looking at this from a philosophical standpoint, this is the expected outcome of a nihilistic postmodernism. Now, postmodernism is, is really the ruling philosophy of the day. Postmodernism questions all of the overarching stories, the meta-narratives of society, and it questions propositional or objective truth claims. The details of postmodern theory or philosophy, they might not be something that you are totally aware of, but the ideas have infected and affected every strata of Western life over the last 60 to 70 years, and especially in the last 25 to 30 years. In her book, Managing Image Collections, an author by the name of Margaret Note writes these words, the postmodern stance is one of doubtfulness, of trusting nothing at face value, of always looking behind the surface of upsetting conventional wisdom. As a philosophy, postmodernism rejects concepts of rationality, objectivity, and universal truth. Instead, postmodernism emphasizes the diversity of human experience and multiplicity of perspectives. It questions traditional notions of truth and the concept that records can have only one possible meaning. In other words, what she's saying in her book is that nothing is ultimately right, wrong, true, good, beautiful, or abhorrent, and everything is open to interpretation. Everybody's view of things is subjective, and you can have your truth, and I can have my truth, and there's no standard of right, wrong, truth, and so forth. And I would suggest to you that the chaos and confusion of our times is the direct result of the influence of postmodern philosophy in our society. I first began studying this in the early 2000s when I read a book called The Universe Next Door by an author named James Sire. And when I first read Sire's book, things in our world were not as chaotic and confusing as they are now. And some of the conclusions of those who were writing on the topic of postmodernism or talking about postmodernism, they, they sounded like doom and gloom prophets who were predicting an insane apocalypse. They were saying things that at the time, in the late 90s, early 2000s, you'd be like, well, you know, maybe these things will overflow from the university and they'll find their way into schools of education and they're finding their way into businesses and government and so forth, but it seems like that's probably not gonna happen. And now, looking back, we realize that a lot of those things have come to pass in a big way. And we are beginning to see a lot of all of that that they spoke of and wrote about 25, 30 years ago, really starting to take hold of our culture. And the result is chaos and confusion. 
And I would say that chaos and confusion in postmodernism is a feature and not a bug. It, it is really ultimately what you get down to when you look at the core of the philosophical mindset of postmodernism. Postmodernism has its grip on our culture in a way that you and I can probably not completely understand. And it has its grip even in the way that we see things in our culture. And the ultimate end of postmodernism seems to be uh, a nihilistic meaninglessness. What does that even mean? It means that nothing has any value or meaning. That there is no ultimate purpose other than to exist. And even existence begins to be questioned by those who are wrestling with kind of the, the core philosophical ideas of postmodernism. Now, you may not think that this is actually a thing, but the fact is that your younger siblings or some of your younger peers at work, especially some of your kids, if you have kids that are in grade school right now or in high school, they are being bombarded with this kind of thinking, which means that we are being taught to question everything and to be sure of nothing. You can't be sure of your identity, we are told by our culture. You can't be sure that you are a man just because you have the biological parts that males have. You can't be sure that you are a woman because not all women menstruate and not all women have a uterus, our culture is telling us. You have to question sex and sexuality. You may not actually be real. The, the world around you might actually be a simulation, people are being told, and that we're not living in base reality, that there's, there's more beyond this dimension, beyond this universe that we can think of than what we can see. And you can't really be sure that anything really actually exists. I mean, this may sound completely absurd to you and insane to you, but these are the things that people are wrestling with. And I know that they're wrestling with it because you can read this stuff in the things that they write on the internet. You can have conversations with people that are in their late teens and their 20s really wrestling with these issues of like core philosophical questions having to do with identity, purpose, origin, destiny, morality. All of this stuff is being questioned. And as a result of this, we are living in a destabilized and confusing and chaotic period of time that, that seems like it's only going to increase in the chaos and confusion. So in our culture now, the question comes against you or me, if we're a believer in objective truth and objective reality, the question comes to us, who are you to say that you are right and somebody else is wrong? Who are you to say that North is North and South is South? How do you know that this is the Northern hemisphere and Australia is in the Southern Hemisphere. Perhaps the world as we know it is upside down and, and uh, you can't be sure of anything. And, and why are you so sure that, that this is a sphere that we live on? You know, have you seen it person, personally from space? Have you been able to see this? It might just be that we're living in a flat earth. You know, I, all of these things may seem completely absurd and crazy to you. And in some respects, that's actually the point. That Postmodernism brings people to a place of just concluding that everything is absurd and everything is meaningless. But these are the philosophical conundrums that people are wrestling with. And it, it is only becoming more and more difficult. And these are not only things that are happening within philosophy departments and higher education, but these are the things that are now being spread along through entertainment and through social media and in schools of education for kids in grade school. So people are wrestling with these things and there is just a ton of confusion and chaos. And this thinking is even beginning to infect the 
the hard sciences, things like science, technology, engineering, and math. So the STEM fields are being affected by all of this crazy, postmodern, absurd thinking. Now, you may be wondering, why am I talking about all of this? And what does this have anything to do with the book of Deuteronomy, which is where we're going to be in just a moment, in Deuteronomy chapter 10. But I think that this has more to do with what we're going to see in the scriptures today than you might realize. So let me try to make the connection a little bit to what we're going to see in the text. If you would, if you have a Bible, you can open it to, we've already been to this text the last few weeks, the very first book of the Bible, the very first chapter of the Bible in Genesis chapter one, we read this in Genesis one, verse one, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void and darkness was on the face of the deep and the spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Then God said, let there be light. And there was light and God saw the light that it was good. And God divided the light from the darkness and God called the light day and the darkness he called night. So evening and morning were the first day. These are the opening words of the, the meta narrative of the Bible, the grand narrative of scripture. And I hope that you have read them or heard them before. It's probably, you know, the case that you have. If you have been a part of Cross Connection Church for any length of time, you certainly have heard these words before. This is God's revelation of himself. Scripture is the self-revelation of God. He's revealing what he is like. He's revealing what he likes. So his nature and his will. And so here at the very opening words of scripture, God's most fundamental thing that he reveals about himself in the self-revelation of God is this. God is the creator who brings order out of chaos. Now, this is a really important point. And perhaps um, like I said, one of the most fundamental things about God as he reveals himself to us in the scripture. The earliest story that we have in the written record of humanity is this story of God bringing order out of chaos. When God finished his creative work that's described in Genesis chapter 1 verses 1 through 31, what we call the six days of creation, at the end of the sixth day of creation, this creation that at the very beginning was formless and void and darkness covered the face of the deep and there was kind of this chaotic, you know, mishmash of nothingness, if you will, although there's all this stuff together there, God comes in and he orders all of this formless and void and dark chaos. And after he's done ordering it during the six days of creation in Genesis chapter one, he looks at everything that he had made and he says, indeed, it is very good. So one of the first things that we learn about God as we open the scriptures is that God is the creator who brings order out of chaos. And then, as I shared a few weeks ago, when I was talking about the, the grand narrative of the Bible, the meta narrative of scripture, the ordered creation of God, after it's done in Genesis chapter one and Genesis chapter two, it is brought back into a place of chaos through sin that is described in Genesis chapter three. So the whole of the world falls under the curse of sin. And so now we live back in a world that is disordered and chaotic because of sin. That's the world that we live in, a fallen world. But as I said, God is the creator who brings order out of chaos. And so this is part of his very nature. That It's not just something that God does. It's not just that he creates things. It's that by his very nature, he is the creator. And he can't help but create and reorder things that have been brought to chaos. So at the very beginning, the earth was without form and void and God by his very nature, who is a God, who is a creator, who brings things to order. He orders those things. Then everything is disrupted by sin and it's disordered by sin. What does God do? Well, he comes back in to reorder things. And this is what we see throughout the scriptures. This is the consistent story that plays out both in the Old and New Testament. 
Sin always brings chaos and God, who is a creator God, he restores chaos to order. And I think that this is really good news because I think you would agree that our world and our culture specifically here in the West, we are in the midst of and it seems like sometimes on the verge of even greater chaos and confusion. So we look around the world, it is filled with all kind of chaos and confusion and God is the one, the Bible says, who reorders chaos and confusion at a macro level throughout the entire world, but then also at a very micro and local level in our own lives. He's able to take the chaos of our lives and to bring about order, which is a beautiful and wonderful thing that we see in the, in the salvation story, but we'll get to that eventually. So we don't actually like chaos. We want order, even if we can't seem to make order a reality. In a fallen world, what's called entropy, if you've ever studied physics, you study the first law of thermodynamics or a second law of thermodynamics, talks about the law of entropy, that everything moves from a state of order to chaos. So in a fallen world, entropy is a reality. And if left to itself, everything in this fallen world will devolve to chaos from order. It's like if you go and clean up your kids' rooms and it's all ordered and perfect, it does not take very long for entropy to, to take place and for everything to move from a state of order to chaos. But as I said just a moment ago, God is the creator who brings order out of chaos. So this reality is a consistent point in the storyline of the Bible, especially as you follow it from the first book of the Bible, Genesis through Exodus and Numbers and Deuteronomy. God creates order and sin brings disorder. And we see this all around us continually. So the Bible is reporting on what we see as reality. God restores order through, so, so he creates order at the beginning in Genesis chapter one, sin brings disorder in Genesis chapter three, and that sin continues to perpetuate and grow and cause more disorder. And then God through the flood, Genesis chapter six, seven, eight, and nine, he brings back a, a reformation, if you will, a, a restoration, and he is restoring once again. And then we see after he brings order, there's more disorder through sin in Genesis chapter 11 with the Tower of Babel. And in the midst of this, God is always coming into the story to bring order out of chaos. So we see him do that when he calls Abram or Abraham. We talked about that both last week and the week before. And he's doing all of this through the narrative of the book of Genesis, through the story of the Bible, through Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. All of this is God's work to restore that which is disordered and broken because of sin. So what is it that God always does to bring order out of chaos? Well, consistently in the storyline of the Bible, we read the words, and God said. What is the action or the activity that God does to bring order out of chaos? He uses his word. His word is powerful. So when we see the, the disorder and the chaos of a formless and void and dark world in, in Genesis chapter one, verses one and two, then God speaks into that and he says, let there be light. And then he speaks into that and he says, let there be land and let there be the sky and let there be all these different things that he's speaking into it with his voice. His voice has power and he's able to bring about a reassembling of chaos into order. So his activity that brings about this ordering of chaos is always his voice. We can say it like this, the word of God brings order out of chaos. So God is a creator who brings order out of chaos. And how does he do that? He speaks, the voice of God speaks order out of chaos. In the New Testament, we see this idea illustrated or spoken of by the Apostle John in the Gospel of John. The opening words of the Gospel of John, they say this, 
in the beginning was the word. And that, that word that's translated word there is the Greek word logos. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He, the word was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him and without him, nothing was made that was made. So what is it in the very beginning, Genesis chapter one, verses one and two or one through 31, what is it that is bringing about order out of chaos? It's the word of God, the logos of God who ultimately we see in John chapter one, verse 14 is Jesus. The word became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory as of the only begotten of the father, full of grace and truth. So the gospel of John is essentially the, the culmination of God's ultimate plan of restoration, bringing order out of chaos. But to set the stage of the gospel or for the gospel, God calls Israel out of the chaos of Egypt and he gives them his word his law at Mount Sinai. And immediately after they received his law, Israel breaks it. This is what you study when you read uh, Exodus chapter 19 and 20. God brings them out of chaos in Egypt by his word, by his power. And then he brings them to Mount Sinai. He gives them the law, they break it. So he is reordering and restoring through his word and they're breaking it. So we see this kind of back and forth thing all the way back in the Old Testament books of Exodus and Numbers and so forth, where God is speaking and his word is bringing order, but then sin brings chaos. So they bring in more chaos through idolatry. But God is always working by his word to bring order out of chaos. So we read this, all this to bring us to where we are today in Deuteronomy chapter 10. So you may have been wondering, how am I going to bring this back to Deuteronomy 10. Look at this, Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse one. Moses is speaking here. He says, at that time, the Lord said to me, hew for yourself two tablets of stone like the first and come up to me on the mountain and make yourself an ark of wood. So you're gonna make a box out of wood. And I will write on the tablets, the words that were on the first tablets because the God had given him the tablets of stone, the 10 commandments and the children of Israel broke them and Moses had broken them, cast them down, they broke. So now there's new tablets. So he said, I want you to make two tablets of stone. I'm gonna write on them the words that were on the first tablets, which you broke and you shall put them in the ark, in that ark of wood. So I made an ark of acacia wood, hewed out two tablets of stone like the first and went up to the mountain, having the two tablets in my hand and God, he wrote on the tablets according to the first writing, the 10 commandments, which the Lord had spoken to you in the mountain from the midst of the fire in the day of the assembly. And the Lord gave them the two tablets to me. And I turned and I came down from the mountain and I put these tablets in the ark, which I had made. And there they are just as the Lord commanded me. So what Moses is doing here in this passage in Deuteronomy chapter 10, he is reminding the children of Israel of what had happened some 38 to 40 years prior when they first received the law from God as described in Exodus chapter 19 and 20. And when they first received the law of God, the children of Israel, they had walked away from God and they started committing idolatry again. And so Moses broke those first 10 commandments, the first tablets of stone. Then he went back up on the mountain of God, Mount Sinai, and God said, here, you're gonna make two new tablets of stone. God puts the 10 commandments on these. And now Moses takes these back down to the children of Israel and puts them in this box, this box of acacia wood, which is overlaid with gold. We call it the Ark of the Covenant. So the law from God, the word from God that brings order out of chaos is brought down to the people and put into the Ark of the Covenant. Now, what is God doing here? Why is this story important? What's the point of this whole picture and why Moses is saying this? Why was this important for Israel? Does it have any importance for us living here 3,400 years after Israel? Well, again, I go back to that first point I made a moment ago. God brings order out of chaos. 
by his word. He wants to bring order out of chaos by his word. And here, God is giving his word to his people, etched on stone and placed in this wooden box. This is a philosophical and theological concept that we have in this passage. And I would suggest that it is essentially true insofar as it is observably real. In other words, what do I mean? This is self-evidently true. What is self-evidently true? There is no order without intelligible thought or word, the logos. This world is chaotic because of sin. There's no way to bring about order out of all the chaos without intelligible thought or logos being spoken into this. Humans have reordered or ordered a chaotic world about as much as you possibly could. I mean, look around the world that we have today. It's pretty amazing what humans have been able to do with the procreative power that God has given to us. We were created in God's image, so we have the capacity, the ability to create and procreate and to assemble or order things out of all the disorder and chaos that we have in the world. How are we able to do that? We're able to do that by intelligible word or thought. We can communicate to one another. And as we can communicate with one another, with our thoughts, with our words, then we can work together to be able to bring order out of chaos. This is a, an amazing theological concept and, and really philosophical concept that's given to us in the scriptures. And when you, like postmodernists have, when you confuse language or you subvert objective truth and reality, society will dissolve into confused chaos very quickly. One of the oldest stories of human literature illustrates this in Genesis chapter 11 in the story of the temple or the Tower of Babel, that all the people had one language and because they had one language and they could exchange thought and idea and speak to each other and communicate, they were able to do some pretty amazing things. And then when that language was confused or it was disrupted, then it, it came to nothing. The thing that they were working on fell apart into confusion. So what is it that is able to reorder chaos or bring order out of chaos? It is word, it is logos, it is thought. And so what is God trying to do? Well, the world is brought into chaos. It's disrupted by sin. And God is trying to restore because God is the creator who brings order out of chaos. He's trying to restore that. So what does he do to bring order out of chaos? He always speaks into the world with logos, with word. And so God gives his word to his people etched on stone in this passage, the Ten Commandments. And these are going to restore or bring about order out of chaos and help them to maintain order in the midst of a chaotic world. So why does God give them his word written on stone? Why not on scrolls of papyrus? Because Moses and the children of Israel, they certainly had scrolls of papyrus. But why did God choose to etch his word, his law on stone? Well, that which is etched in stone is, is set and it's steadfast and it is enduring and it's not editable. It can't be changed in any sort of way. It's unchanging. And this word or law, which is going to govern God's people beginning at Genesis, or I'm sorry, at, at Deuteronomy chapter 10 and on into their coming into the promised land, this word that is going to govern God's people and maintain order in the midst of a chaotic world, it is to be fixed. It's etched in stone. And then not only is it etched in stone, notice that Moses in this passage, he places this word into this acacia wooden box that is overlaid with gold. And then eventually this box, the Ark of the Covenant, is placed in the midst of a room, within a room, in the tabernacle, and ultimately within the temple. 
and this room where this gold box with the law of God etched in stone, that was called the Holy of Holies. And that was to be at the center of the camp of Israel. And eventually it would be central to everything that happened among the people of Israel. And the, the name Israel means governed of God. So those who are governed of God, they have the law of God etched in stone in this gold box, in this room called the Holy of Holies, in this building called the temple. And it is in the central part of the nation. And that is what keeps them ordered in a chaotic world. All of this is symbolic. And I believe that all of this is important. God was going to govern his people by his written word, by the Logos, which when they would obey it, would bring about and maintain order and would result in blessing, as we're going to see as we continue through this story. Israel could not venture in to possess the promised land. Moses is preparing them in Deuteronomy chapter 10 to go in and, pro and possess the promised land. They could not possess the promised land until they possessed God's law. They had to have God's law in the midst of them to keep them ordered and maintained. And as we will see in the remainder of Deuteronomy and in the remainder of the story of the Old Testament, Israel as a people, as a nation, they would remain in the promised land, God's blessed promised land, as long as they maintained and held to God's law. Now, of course, they, they didn't do that. So every time they would drift away from God's standard, from his law, they would slide into chaos. And then God would send them a prophet to call them back to the word of God, back to the law of God, because it is the law of God. It is the objective standard of God's truth, the logos of God, that helps the society to be, to be fixed and to be steadfast and to receive God's blessing. So they would drift away from keeping God's law and they would descend into chaos and God would send them a prophet to bring them back to it. And that really is the whole point of this story to show us the importance of God's word and God's law as we're kind of moving from this stage here in Deuteronomy chapter 10. So look back at Deuteronomy chapter 10, beginning at verse 12. And now Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you? But to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him and to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and in all your soul and to keep the commandments of the Lord and his statutes, which I command to you today, for your good. If you're one who underlines things in your Bible, underline those words for your good. God's word is given to us for our good. And anytime that Israel in the Old Testament and we today, when we depart from the objective standard of truth, God's word, we see that chaos and confusion ensues. That's, that's where we always end up when we drift away from God's word. Now, you may object and say, but not everybody has God's word. Not everybody has the Bible. Not everybody has the Ten Commandments. And, and yet they still live in fairly ordered societies. There have been pretty ordered societies around the world that don't necessarily have the Bible or the Ten Commandments. And I would say that that is true. And that's true because every single person has somewhat of the law of God imprinted upon their heart. This is what Paul talks about in his letter to the Romans. In Romans chapter 2, Paul says this, Romans 2 verse 14, for when Gentiles, that's unbelievers who don't have God's word, when they do, I'm sorry, when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do things that are in the law, these, although not having the law, are a law to themselves who show the work of the law written on their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness between themselves, their thoughts accusing or else excusing them. 
So understand what the Apostle Paul is saying in this passage. He's saying that every single person around the world created by God, created in God's image, has a portion of God's law written upon their, their heart. This is what the author and thinker C.S. Lewis is talking about in his great book, Mere Christianity. So we all have God's law to some extent written upon our heart in the same way that the children of Israel had the law of God written upon stone. So whether you've got the law of God written upon stone or etched in your heart because you were created in God's image, you have some form of God's law written upon your heart. So what happens when a people, any people, whether it's the children of Israel who have the law of God, on the stone tablets, in the ark, in the temple, surrounded by the priesthood, what happens when they depart from God's law? And what happens when people in other cultures, in you know, Mesoamerica or Central America or down in Africa throughout the ages, out through Asia, when they depart from God's law written upon their hearts, what happens? What happens in a culture? Well, Paul talks about that in Romans chapter one, large section, but listen along to this in Romans one verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. What happens when people turn away from the truth of God written upon their heart by doing unrighteous things? They suppress the truth and unrighteousness because what may be known of God is manifest in them. God wrote his word upon their heart in them. For God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made. The heavens declare the glory of God. The earth shows forth God's handiwork, King David said in Psalm 19. So the, the invisible attributes of God are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even God's eternal power and Godhead, so that man is without excuse. Because although humanity knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were they thankful, but they came, became futile in their thoughts and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and they changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. Therefore, God also gave them up to uncleanness in the lusts of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves, who exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to vile passions, for even their women exchanged the natural use for what is against nature. Likewise, also men, leaving the natural use of a woman, it burned in their lust for one another, men with men committing what is shameful and receiving in themselves the penalty of their error which was due. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind to do things which are not fitting being filled with all unrighteousness, sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, evil-mindedness. They are whisperers, backbiters, hater of God, violent, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful, who knowing the righteous judgment of God that those who practice such things are deserving of death, not only do the same, but also approve of those who practice them. What on earth is all of that about? What, what's the whole point of everything that Paul is saying there in that passage? Simply this, chaos is the inevitable consequence of departing from God's law. Whether it is God's law written upon tablets of stone and boxes of wood like Israel had, or it is the law of God written upon our heart within our conscience. So the children of Israel, they had the, the word of God, they had the, the commandments of God in written form in the, the tablets of stone, but, of stone, but also the, the scrolls that they had received from Moses handed down through all the ages, which they, they took good care of the word of God. But even those peoples and cultures that did not have God's word written on tablets of stone or on scrolls, we have God's word upon our heart. And whether it is written upon the tablets of our heart or the tablets of stone, when we depart from God's law, 
that brings order and blessing, then chaos is the inevitable consequence of departing from God's law. So, so here's the, the litmus test for, for us to look around our culture right now. Look at our culture this week. What do you see? See if you see any of these things that Paul mentions in Romans chapter one, sexual immorality, covetousness, malice, envy, murder, strife, deceit, evil-mindedness, gossip, violence, pride, boasting, disobedience, untrustworthiness, etc., etc. all these different things. Chaos is the inevitable consequence of turning away from God's law, departing from God's law. And if you look around our culture right now, I suggest that, that you will see all of these things, which are, they are the indications that we have left from what is true and good. And, and postmodernism has called into question everything that is objectively true and objectively moral and objectively beautiful and good and all these things. It says that all of that stuff is, is your truth. It's subjective. It, it's to be questioned. It's not to be held to certainly. And as a result, what are we seeing in our culture? We're seeing a drifting towards chaos. So if turning away from God's word written upon our hearts or written in the scriptures, if turning away from God's word leads to chaos and confusion, what is the inevitable consequence of turning to his word? Well, King David, he says in Psalm 1, these words, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And in God's law, his law, he meditates day and night. This person shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that brings forth fruit in its season, whose leaf also shall not wither, and whatever he does shall prosper. Now, I want to make it really clear as I begin to close today that you and I, we, we cannot make ourselves perfect or even make the world perfect by adhering to God's law. All of these things ultimately point to something far greater than God's written law that would come much later through the gospel. But as we are adhering to the scriptures, God does bring about great blessing in our lives. So while the, the law of God is not going to perfect us and it's not going to perfect this world, walking in God's law, as David says there in Psalm 1 verses 1 through 3, it does result in blessing. You could say it like this, blessing and prosperity belong to those who walk in God's law. And I think that you can Prove this from the scriptures in a number of places, Old Testament and New Testament as well. This is very, very clear. Blessing and prosperity belong to those who walk in God's law. And you can define blessing and prosperity different ways. But the Bible has a de definition for those things, which we'll look at at another time. But, but notice these words. Deuteronomy came, comes just before the book of Joshua. And Moses is preparing the children of Israel to go into the promised land, but he's not going to go with them. Joshua is going to be the one who carries them into the promised land. And notice what God says to Joshua as he's getting ready to lead the people into the promised land at the opening of Joshua chapter 1 verse 6. He says to Joshua, be strong and of good courage for to this people you shall divide as an inheritance the land which I swore to their fathers to give them. Only be strong and very courageous that you may observe to do according to all the law which Moses my servant commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left that you may prosper wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate in it day and night that you may observe to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous and then you will have good success. 
Have I not commanded you, be strong and of good courage. Do not be afraid nor dismayed for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. I don't think that that passage could be any more clear from God. The law of God will not perfect you perfectly before a holy God. It will not bring about a perfect world. However, God blesses and prospers and causes to have great success those who courageously walk in his law. That is very clear in this passage. And we're going to see it more as we go through the book of Deuteronomy. The ultimate story of scripture is that God in Christ Jesus and by his spirit works in us to will and to do those things that are pleasing to him, to walk in a way that is pleasing to him through his law. But the key is this, those who stay strong with God's word and hide his word in their hearts, it will bring about a, a rejection of sin and the scriptures say righteousness will exalt a nation. So God blesses and prospers those with good success who courageously walk in his law. And at this moment, because our culture is so quickly going against what the scriptures have to say and going against the philosophy and theology of scripture, it is going to take courage for the people of God to walk in God's law. It's going to take courage for the people of God to stand upon the word of God and to be able to say that certain ways of thinking, certain actions, certain plans in our culture are just wrong. They're not in line with the scriptures. They're unrighteous. And it'll take courage for us to be able to say, that's not how we ought to walk. We are to walk in a way that is pleasing to God and righteousness will exalt a nation. But we're living in an incredible time of increasing chaos and confusion, which is the inevitable consequence of turning away from God's law. And if we want to see things changed and transformed in any sort of way where we see order and we see blessing, then it is going to take the people of God standing upon the word of God and living out the word of God in their own lives as God works in us to will and to do his good pleasure. And so that's my hope. That's my prayer as we continue to go through the scriptures together, that God would use his word to transform us, his people, by the renewing of our minds, that we would begin to walk these things out. One of the dangers is when Christians try to just use this to legislate morality to other people and they don't use God's word to reform their own thinking and speaking and actions in this world. But what God wants to do with us is for us to walk by example, if you will, and to walk in his word so that other people will see us transform and they will see the blessing and the order that results from that. So my prayer is that God would do that because blessing and prosperity belong to those who walk in God's law. So Father, I pray that you would speak these things to our hearts, help us to hide your word in our hearts and that you would transform us so that we would be a light to a world that is in total chaos and confusion. And Lord, that you would help us to be conduits through which your good news, your gospel, your word flows to other people. Work in and through us, your church, we pray. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen.